Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Stephanie LaRue. Stephanie is the Chief of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where she leads the implementation of the National DEI Strategy for the Intelligence Community. Stephanie also serves as the IC representative to various White House initiatives working toward advancing educational equity, excellence, and economic opportunity for various underrepresented communities. In 2016, Stephanie founded the Latino Intelligence Network, a collective of Latinx employee research groups across the IC. As the chair of the CIA's Hispanic Advisory Council, HAC, Latina Style Magazine named HAC the top 25 employee research group of the year. Stephanie is the recipient of the ICEEO and Diversity Award for Exceptional Service and CIA's Donald Cryer Award for Exemplary Contributions to the Agency Mission. Stephanie, welcome to Iron Butterfly. We are thrilled, excited to have you. Um, as many of our friends and listeners of the podcast know, um, we don't have favorites, or we're not supposed to have favorites on Iron Butterfly. Um, but we have to say that I think this is one of the episodes we most look forward to recording. So we are excited to have you. I am excited to be here. That I'm really excited to be here. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. So it is really, it's a really cool experience. And I'm so grateful that you all uh, invited me to be here. Of course. Well, here we go. So um, I often joke that um, I like to start from the beginning, you know, like, tell me who you are from the beginning. But honestly, that's where we're going to start. So can you kick us off by sharing a bit about who you are and where you grew up and how you found your way into the IC? Yeah. Um, so I, I love that question. I think um, I'm the daughter of two South American immigrants who came to this country in the 1970s um, looking for that, you know, the American dream. Right. Um, we I was born in New York, left New York and because my father was working for the federal government at the time and we got uh, sent over to Maryland. And so that's where I spent most of my formative years, right, from seven uh, onward. I never planned on working in the IC ever. <laughs> like there's a saying in the IC, people say that you either plan to be there your whole life or you just accidentally landed there. And I was definitely one of the people who, who landed there, right? Like I, you know, my background being what it was, right, being the first to do everything, right, first generation college student, all of that stuff. Uh, I never really saw myself I didn't really know what the IC was first, like, to be honest, right? I I didn't know what what it was, really. And then when I found out what it was, I never saw myself actually working there. 
Um, you know, I have family members who kind of run the gamut, right? Family members who had, you know, who have been in prison and family members who are undocumented. And so applying to the IC was something that I was really afraid of for a really long time. Uh, I didn't think that the IC was a place that my, I didn't want to apply and then put somebody that I loved in jeopardy, right? I didn't, want, I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want one of my family members to get deported because I wanted to pursue this dream of mine. And in going through the process, speaking to the recruiters, I'd say the recruiter that I spoke to at CIA, um, she was really wonderful. She did a really good job of telling me kind of, you know, this is, you know, this is what the process is like. Like, unless you have Fidel Castro in your basement, we don't really <laughs> care, <laughs> you know, about your family. We care about whether or not you're the kind of person to, uh, you know, you're the kind of person who we can trust. And so, yeah, so I was uh, super excited about that. But, you know, getting even to apply was, you know, first I had to get over the hurdle of whether or not, you know, I could be there. But then it was, you know, whether or not I ate the imposter syndrome nonsense, right, that I still deal with all the time that I, I try to quiet that noise. <laughs> um, college was was I went to Maryland for undergrad and I had a really great experience there, made a lot of really great friends and um Undergrad was, was probably too easy for me. And I say that because when it came time to applying to law school, I was, I was like a bag of, I mean, I got hit with like a ton of bricks. It was so awful. You know, I studied for the LSAT and uh, at school, like I said, school always came easy to me, but the LSAT was not one of those things. You know, I studied and I studied and um, it didn't really matter. I, no matter what I did, I couldn't get the score that I wanted. And uh, after graduating undergrad, you know, that was a really hard time for me. You know, that was talk about humbling experiences, right? Because before then, that's how I defined myself is I, that's what Stephanie does. Like Stephanie's not always been the, you know, the prettiest or the funniest, but Stephanie always did school well. Right. And that is, that was a huge part of my identity. As and so not, was that the goal up front? Like early on was I, I, I want to, I think I want to go to law school. I want to go into a law career. Yeah, but that was really because I didn't know what else to do. Right. So my family, again, you know, being the daughter of immigrants, you came to this country and it was, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Those were pretty much, you know, the one word professions. Uh, and I really wanted to make my parents proud. You know, I, I my mother has, you know, she doesn't have a high school diploma. My father only had a high school diploma. And so for them coming to this country and having a child pursue a terminal degree um, was a really, really big deal. So if I'm honest with myself, I really only went to law school for them, right? I, I wanted wow. them, I wanted to make them proud. And <laughs> I think as I grew up, I realized like, it's like, you know, they don't have to pay this bill back and they don't have to live my life <laughs> to five. So maybe I should have been a little more judicious or a little more selfish, but you know, in retrospect, everything worked out fine, right? I have a great life. I love my job. I love being, I love having practice and had the experience of an attorney, but that was always my plan, but it was more, it was more to please my parents and they make my parents proud, you know, and, and be able to give them that gift. Cause after everything they'd sacrificed, I felt like that was, I had to, right. I, I wanted to honor their sacrifice and be worthy of that, of them. You know, I had to. So when I was in law school, I finally got in again, I went to Maryland law as well. I wanted to quit my second year of law school because like, my heart wasn't in it and it was so hard. And I remember talking to my dad at the dining room table and telling him that I wanted to quit, you know, like daddy, mm -hmm. I can't do this anymore. And he sat down. My father's a hardcore smoker. He's been smoking since he was in his teenage years. And he sat me down and he said, Stephanie, you don't know what hard is. Right. And he said, your, your mother cleaned houses on her hands and knees until she was seven months pregnant with you to make sure that we could make ends meet. Like that's, wow. you know, and, and he just like went on this, like long, this laundry list of sacrifices that he and my mother and my family members had made so that I could be exactly where I was that day. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
And that was really powerful. So after that, I just sat there. He was like, you don't know hard. So I sat back and I'm like, okay, I'm going to take my first world problems. (laughs) I'm going to go back to my apartment and I'm going to just sit here and go back to law school. Right. But, but I say all that to say that, you know, my parents were a huge part of my story. Right. And making them happy is like, I still live in the, in the, like the town where I grew up. Right. Because I need to be close to my parents and um, they're just a huge part of my story. Right. So you uh, go to law school and, you know, what, how did the story bring you to the IC? What, I mean, you didn't think that that was something that probably wasn't even in your world growing up, but is it because you were in this area and and it was um, something that was around you? Like, how did it um, manifest? Sure. So my friend's dad, he owned a defense contracting company and it was really small at the time. And he knew my friend's dad knew I was in law school. And so he said, hey, you need a, an easy job that's going to be flexible. It's going to pay you something. I need someone to kind of stand up the HR stuff in my office. That's kind of, you know, can you do that? And I was like, absolutely. So in that, that's where kind of I got exposure to the IC. Right? He had, he had um, contracts with the FBI uh, and with NSA, but he didn't have any with CIA. And so that was the one place I could apply, you know, given all the rules and stuff at the time. Uh, so like I said, when I put it in my application at no point, <laughs> like, and I think other people have this experience too. Um, I put my application in just thinking there's no way in hell this is going to go through. Like no way in hell, like me, nobody from nowhere, you know, there's no way it's going to happen. And I remember getting that first email back from CIA, like, Hey, you made it to the next step. Would you do X, Y, or Z? And in my mind, I'm like, holy crap, like, okay, I made it to the next step. And so I go to the next step and I'm just telling myself, there's no way you make it through the next step. Like, you know, just trying to you know manage my expectations. And then I get the next email and it's the same thing every single time until finally I get my conditional offer. And I'm like, holy crap. Like, and in my mind, <laughs> I'm thinking, like I have fooled everybody. <laughs> right. But that's that, you know, I have to quiet that noise. And if I'm honest with you, even to this day, you know, I'm, I'm in a senior position. I, I've got an amazing team, but there are still moments to this day where I would, I stop myself and I have to humble myself to the fact that it's like, oh my goodness, like you are you're really here. Like you really did this. Right. So, so that is how I landed at CIA um, all those many, many years ago. (laughs) And can you, so I, you know, that's, that's, that's really inspiring. I think for many, um, because I think many people will um, feel that they can see their themselves in you, you know, not everyone is from this area and people come from all over the country, including myself. And not everyone has, family or legacy in, in these agencies and they apply just thinking there's no way there's no way I'm just going to try it and see and and here you are um, so take us through your career thus far like from when you started until uh, until now um, where did you start how did you move through the community and ultimately how did you become the chief diversity and inclusion officer uh, of the IC yeah. this huge place. I, uh, I love my job <laughs> and I've got some of my team members on the call today and, and, and they know how, how passionate I'm about this work, but it didn't start that way. Uh, when I applied to CIA, I was, I was already in law school. My plan was I just get in the door. And then once I graduate from law school, transition into the office of general counsel, because in my mind, that's how simple things were. Right. Mm-hmm. So I apply into, I get into human resources because that's what my experience was in prior to that. Uh, and my first job was a very junior officer. I was a GS seven, uh, coming in to do human resources. And I remember 
I mean, like I had two years of law school under my belt and I remember I was doing very heavily administrative work, you know, and I was bored out of my mind. And so I graduated from law school kind of shortly thereafter. Uh, and when I graduated from law school, my plan was, you know, take the bar exam, you know, start your new job in this wonderful career in OGC. Um, so I took the bar exam, passed the first time around, thank goodness, because pretty much the entire world, I mean, there was there could not have been worse conditions for me to try to take the bar exam in. Um, but in any event, I passed the bar exam first time around, come back to CIA, and I'm like, great. Um, now I'm this, this fully-fledged licensed attorney, let's apply to OGC. And so I applied to OGC, and my background wasn't necessarily, you know, what the traditional background was of, an, of, of the attorneys there. You know, I went to a law school. I went to law school at night, right? I had a B average GPA, which I was very proud of because I worked very hard for it. Um, but I didn't go to one of these top name, you know, these fancy name schools. I had never clerked for for a judge, or, you know, or any. I didn't have a lot of the experiences that a lot of my colleagues in that space had. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't get into OGC the first time around. And again, like that's like the second time in my life. I was just devastated, right? Like first time was really struggling to get the LSAT score that I wanted. And then finally being able to get that score, getting into the school I wanted, and then not, and then applying to the job and then not getting the job I wanted. So I was I was devastated, right? And so from there, I try to kind of break out of out of HR in any any way possible, right? I'd love to say that I just, you know, I was committed to the IC and that was the only thing I wanted to do, but that's not true, right? Once I, I felt like I couldn't, I didn't have a path there, um, I tried to get out, right? And, and I, I really do believe that this is just where I was supposed to be because I put a lot of effort in trying <laughs> to get out, right? Um, and it's just every, op- I mean, you would not believe all the obstacles I encountered. Like there was just nothing. I tried to, you know, break out from one space to the next. And so in any event, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm pregnant. I find out I'm pregnant. I'm with my first son. And I'm like, you know what, you know, the, the world is in a crazy place right now. Let's just stay here, have your son. Um, federal governments are, it is the benefits are amazing. Right. So I stay, I have my first son, I come back and I'm like, all right, I'm going to double down on my attempt to find, you know, life elsewhere, seek happiness elsewhere. And, um, I do that for about six months and then I find out I'm pregnant with my second son um, because I believe my mom, when she said that breastfeeding was birth control, it is not birth control. <laughs> <laughs> well, I that are 15 months apart. <laughs> and that's why I stayed in HR for my second tour. Um, and again, I was miserable. I was just so unhappy because the work was just so heavily administrative. And I remember saying, hey, like, I will do it. You don't even have to pay me more. Just give me more responsibility, right? Yeah. I'm really like printing out like award certificates and giving people their 10 years of service pins. You know, I'm a fully fledged attorney at this point. And I was bored out of my mind and I just couldn't, couldn't get out of the space. And so from there, I found my first job in HR uh, that I really enjoyed. It's a program manager job. I had amazing leadership and my boss, she was wonderful because she saw, she didn't see me for my grade, right? She saw me for my capacity, for my capability, for what I could be. Like she saw the future, Stephanie, like the seven mm-hmm. today, I, she saw that then. Right. And she just gave me kind of room to do whatever I wanted. She gave me room to be creative. And, and that is what made me fall in love with that work. Right. So I'm doing that work. I love it. I get super involved with the Hispanic advisory council. Like I'm happy now I've, I'm like, you know, I've decided a career HR is going to be for me. Uh, and then super getting involved with the Hispanic advisory council. I find my mentor. Um, she, she finds me actually, uh, Carmen Middleton. And at the time she sees me and I was doing a, a speech for the Hispanic advisory council. And she sends her executive assistant to reach out to me and say, Hey, you know, she wants to talk to you. So come up and see her. 
And of course, me being, I've always asked hard questions. I've always pushed the envelope in pretty much every office I've been in. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm about to get fired. Like I said something that somebody doesn't agree with. I wore the wrong shirt on the wrong day. Someone doesn't agree with my message. Like it's, I wear shirts with the messages. I'm always, I'm, I secretly fear that one day someone's going to tell me that I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get the boot for the shirt that I'm wearing. But, um, so yeah, so she invites me up and she asks to be, she pretty much asked me to be my mentor, right? She says, Stephanie, you've got a lot going for you, but you've got some sharp elbows and you need a little bit of polish and I'm going to help you get there. So she was the highest ranking Latina at the time in the IC. And we start meeting for regular monthly lunches and she's learning about my story. I'm learning about her story. Um, and you know, the stars aligned and I mean, she was just wonderful. I just, I can't thank her enough. I'm still, I'm still in touch with her today. I send her Christmas cards every year um, and it was great. And so after that, I ended up transitioning. I take, I, I, you know, I didn't give up on my dreams for, of, of getting into the office of general counsel. So they have a rotations program where uh, they get to pretty much try out a lawyer for free. Right. So if you're in the IC already, like you don't take up one of their billets. I mean, it's just the perfect, like they get to try you out. It's like, it's putting me on layaway, like try before oh you. My hack, goodness. Right? And if they That's... wanted to see if I could hack it. Right. And so, but for me, I was like, if all, if all it means is a little bit of hard work, all I need is my foot in the door and I will show you, you know, what I bring to the table. Just give me the opportunity. So I get in, I get my first assignment in litigation division. I kill it by every account. Uh, and I have a great team there too. The manager there, um, his name is Will. I would, again, amazing leadership. You know, uh, by the time I got to that position, I, I hadn't practiced. I think I'd be in, been out of law school for like four years. And so to say that I was rusty is an understatement. Like I... <laughs> I didn't remember anything. Right. So I could pretty much go back to law school, but him and the staff there, the lawyers there were so gracious, you know, saying, all right, this is what you need to know. Right. Cause it was such a niche area of law that um, I had never, I'd never even studied in, in law school. You know, my, my first gig, I do that. I go to the administrative law division next. And from there I'm, I'm managing the vehicles account which is um, like any car accident that happens, I, I get to manage that. And so I was bored out of my mind, to say the least. And uh, that year, my son, my oldest, started kindergarten. <laughs> and uh, I took the first, his first day of school off and I put him on the bus and then I go home and I am devastated. Like I am like, a, I'm bawling. Like I could not stop crying. And after a while, I realized that these are not normal tears. So like something's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And so I call my therapist and everyone who knows I'm, I'm super open about struggling with my anxiety and, you know, even depression at times. But so, and I have a therapist and I'll tell the world, you know, that that's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. So I call her and um, we do this exercise and she asks me to look back on, you know, why she asked me to kind of do some unpacking. So in that whole process, I realized that um, I wasn't, I wasn't the mom that I, that I wanted to be. Right. Um, I realized that if I couldn't be the last face that my little boy saw when he got on that bus and the first face he saw when he got off, if I couldn't be that mom, then the thing that I left him for, the thing I left him to do needed to be my life's work, right? Needed to be the thing that got me out of bed every single morning. And being an attorney was not it, right? Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that it took me so long to finally make it and to prove myself. And despite the hard work of actually going to law school and the 
the financial burden of taking on those student loans, it was so hard to walk away from that. And so when I did some, you know, more self-reflection and all that, I realized that the one thing that I always loved doing was diverse was what was what's known now as diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility work, right? Like from elementary school, you know, all the way up into now, it's the only thing that I'd always done. And I'd always done it as a side hustle. I never did it as like a full fledged thing, but I realized that that was what I wanted to do. So I go back to CIA, I have a bunch of mentors who work in that space. Uh, And one of them at the time, she said, you know, hey, she was a chief diversity officer and she, me and having, having this conversation with her, she said, hey, um, you know, I've got this job openness to write the strategy. You're a strong writer. I know you really like this. Would you be interested? And in my mind, I'm like, absolutely, you know, but I don't know what I'm doing here. But she said, you know, you're smart. You'll figure it out. Right. So another person in my life who just who saw the future Stephanie. Right. They didn't they didn't see me for where I was at that moment. They saw where I could go. Um, and that's how I landed my first diversity and inclusion job. And from there, things kind of took off. Like, I'm, I'm so happy. I built an amazing network. I really feel like I'm making a difference. Um, and I think the biggest thing that, that gives me kind of pause, right? So I, I get questions from a lot of people sometimes about, you know, whatever, go back to practicing law. Do I miss it? Is there anything about it that I miss? And I, and I really don't miss anything, to be honest with you. I, I think, yeah, I don't miss anything, you know, because I know that while I was a good lawyer, I'm a great DEIA practitioner. I'll never be as good a lawyer as I am a DEIA practitioner. I, I won't be, right? Because I don't love it as much as I love this work. So, I, yeah, I, does that answer the question? Oh, my gosh, yes. And, you know, I, I, when you were speaking, all I could think of is I don't actually think there is a better job because you're not only supporting the mission of the IC, but you're yep. supporting the people of the mm-hmm. IC. And it's like this double mission like whammy. Um, and how amazing is that? Yeah. Like I don't turn this off. Like my, my, like everybody in my office and I like, I don't turn this off. I, when I'm home, I'm reading articles about this. I'm, you know, I'm reading books about this. I also, you know, being a woman of color with a, with, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, the daughter of immigrants, like all of those aspects of my identity that intersect that make me who I am. Like, I don't just leave that when I, when I walk into the building at work or when I walk out, like those issues that affect me at work affect me in every space that I occupy. Right. So because of that, it's just, it's, it is my life and it's the life of so many people. Women don't stop being women when they walk into the workplace. You know, we, the same things we need at home, we need at work. Right. Um, and so it really is, you know, and, and that drives me, like you said, that really does drive me. It's, you know, I don't, I don't leave, I don't leave, like, I don't take off my shirt and my, my, my identity, just leave it outside. I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> Welcome to work. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so what I love about your story is you, you speak openly about, you know, failures you've encountered uh, along the way. And I know you've shared a few with us um, already, but, you know, if you could share any more and how, you know, the failure failures you've encountered kind of shaped your path and who you are. I love failure. I think that's the <laughs> thing to say. I'm serious. I, I do because you know what, like there's failure isn't fatal. Right. And I think so many people see failure as fatal. Failure does not have to be fatal. You know, like I one of the women in my office, she's a brilliant, brilliant officer. She's retired military. She said something to me the other day that just has stuck with me. And I've said it, I think, a million times since I since she told me she said, you have to fail forward. 
Mm-hmm. I've never heard that in my life, but I think it so perfectly sums up how, how I view failure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, so when I say I love failure, that's why, cause it's an opportunity to learn, right? You pick, you know, you learn, don't do it again, figure it out, move on. Um, and when it, in terms of failures, I think one of my, I, you know, I'm just, there's so many failures in my life. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> like I, you know, well, and you learn the most, I think from failing, like you're not going to learn. I, I, I always think when I mentor folks, you know, the best lessons are when you fail or when things are difficult, right? Yeah. Like you're not, you have a bad boss. You're going to learn how to not be that person, right? right? Um, you have a setback. You're going to learn how to maneuver and take a different road. So mm-hmm. I love that, that, you know, I love failure and fail forward. That's the way to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to, Think of other, like, I mean, I don't know. There's, there's just so many, my life has been a series of one failure after another, but I think it's, um, it, I don't know. I, I have this brutal optimism that I just, you know, I don't know what to do with it. And I think that's how I, I get through everything, you know, is every time I fail, I'm like, well, I, I know there's just, there's just more hard work. That's just more hard work for me to do. You know, it's like the Winston Churchill said, so there's two types of, two types of success initial and ultimate. Right. And so I, I think about that a lot. Right. And so mm-hmm. just look at win today does not guarantee a win tomorrow. Right. And a loss today doesn't mean a loss tomorrow. So, um, I don't know that I have a favorite failure. <laughs> no, no, you don't have to I have a love them all. Right. Like, <laughs> right. Equally. It, it, it's made who you are, right. All of them combined. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So, uh, as some of our listeners might know, if they know you, um, you uh, trended on Twitter as part of the Humans of CIA series. And I was wondering if you could share with us how that happened and what it was like to trend on Twitter for 72 hours. Well, first, I, I'm, I'm a millennial, but still, I don't really like I, that was my first foray into Twitter, if I'm being honest. I, I drove into work that day and I got a text from my god sister who was like hey congrats on 20 congrats on trending and i was like yeah cool i didn't know what she was talking about but i was on my way to work so i was like yeah thumbs up like move on <laughs> um, and i get to work that morning and it was a whole debacle but kind of the before that so uh i had someone from our office of public affairs at cia reached out to me and said hey we're doing this humans of cia series do you want to participate in this we think you'd be awesome and I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, um, and, but I told them, you know, listen, if I do this, I've got it, I've got to be me, right? Like I'm very sensitive to anybody making me a tool or trying to, or feeling like I'm being used, right. Or that like, I'm just a symbol. Right. Uh, and so I said, cool, but if we're going to do it, it's got to be my way. So they say, cool. We do the interview. They type up some talking points that are my words, right. The talking points, but I didn't like the way that it that it made me sound. I didn't like, I just didn't, I wasn't happy. So I asked if I can do a few edits. And of course, a few edits turned into a rewrite, a complete rewrite. <laughs> and I turn it in and I'm like, listen, like, this is what, this is what I want to say. It's two and a half minutes. And they're like, cool, cool. We'll get it done. We record the video. The video comes out on YouTube and it kind of comes in March. It kind of comes and goes like fart in the wind. Like nobody knows. It's like, whatever that is. <laughs> then, uh, then it gets released. See, I shares it on their Twitter page. And that's when things got real, right? 
there are, that's when it started trending number four worldwide, um, which is huge. But then also um, that's when, that's when um, the deep dark holes of Twitter came out right on every, I mean, the, every possible critique that you could possibly imagine came out. There were people I identified as a cisgender woman and someone was like, Oh, she's a transsexual. And I'm like, wait, like who even uses that word anymore? Right. But I mean, there were just all kinds of, awful things that people were saying about me from kind of every, every single space that, that possibly exists. I was, people challenged my, my mental health and they said that I was a liability to national security, that I shouldn't be there. Um, that I didn't, you know, again, I didn't earn my way there. Why was I wasting time talking about my personal experience and not, um, more the IC and then other folks challenged me for being a Latino working in the intelligence community. Like how, how dare you, how could you given everything that, you know, you know, what they perceive to be, you know, the icy. Uh, and it got really, really ugly, really, really fast. And when I tell you that it was, it was sad. I mean, I was, I, I got sad. I'm not going to lie. There was, I got phone calls from people like that I hadn't seen in years because it was all over TV and stuff. And people were saying they were walking, it turned into like, where were you went? Right. My friends would reach out to me and they'd say, Oh my goodness, I was walking through the hallway when, like I was at the gym when, you know, like I couldn't believe it was you. Um, and so they all kind of was wonderful because they all rallied around me and they gave me a lot of support, um, which was beautiful, but it got really ugly and really fast. And I was like, if I were to say that I wasn't sad a little bit about that, Mm -hmm. I I would be lying. Right. Because I, it was so hard for me to see people be so pissed off about me talking about my own story, about me being a mother, about me, you know, trying to walk away and reject imposter syndrome about, my experience. Like it's, it's two minutes about me. Like, why does that piss you off so much? <laughs> um, it was really hard. And I remember one day, you know, our, I went to go pick up my kids uh, for my mom's and we're driving home, but we kind of went a different route. Uh, and you know, that was security had just advised us just in case, you know, out of an abundance of cautious, cause there were some awful things said and we passed the house we, and my boys are like, mom, where are we going? Right. My boys are six and seven at the time. Like, where are we going? And I was like, you know, we're going home, but like, we're just, we got to drive around a little bit. And then they're like, why? Right? Cause of course, little kids are not going to leave this shit alone. Oh, not gonna <laughs> That's okay. We can swear on this. Okay. Okay. I swear a lot. I'm trying really hard. <laughs> um, it is yeah. okay. All right. So they, they won't leave it alone. And so I ended up telling them like, Hey, cause they saw my video and they thought it was the coolest thing ever. Right. They're like, my mom's on YouTube. Right. So, uh, they thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then I ended up telling them like, Hey, remember that video mommy made? Like some people didn't like it. Right. And then my younger son was like, well, why? And I'm like, well, people just have different views about different things. And then he's like, well, mom, like all you do is talk about yourself and wanting good things for all people and confidence. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, babe, like that's what I said. And he goes, why, why are that upsetting people? I'm like, honey, I don't know. Right. And then he gets really quiet. <laughs> And when he does that, I get scared because I know something's coming. So then he says, you know what, mom? That's okay. Because Martin Luther King wanted really good things for people too. And they killed him for them. <laughs> oh my like, goodness. Oh my goodness. So um, one, my son just compared me to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I'm like, <laughs> I could die now, right? But then secondly, like his his ability to make that connection at six years at old. Six, right? yeah. Six years old, right? So I'm in the front seat and I get all emotional, you know, but but it was, that was a really powerful moment. And then, you know, I get talking to my husband and I was, you know, I talked to my husband about the whole experience, talking to my therapist again. 
I tell people that I have like independently financed everything that wonderful and expensive that she has in her life. <laughs> she gets all of my money, but she is so worth it. Um, so yeah, so I ended up talking to him about it and, you know, we're just kind of unpacking the whole situation, but he asked me if, if I could go back and do it, would I, would I redo the video? Would I do it again? Right. And, uh, the answer was a hundred percent. Yes. In the midst of everything mm-hmm. I was going through, everybody being so awful, the answer was 100% yes, because I made a promise to myself when I made that video. And I didn't know that the promise was going to be so, you know, upsetting to so many people, but I made a promise to myself that I would share the parts of me that I needed to see as a young woman, right? I needed to see a woman of color owning her space and her time, owning how badass she was, how smart she was, how, you know, competent she was, but also knowing that this is a person who may have struggled with insecurity and this person might also be a mom. And this person is also speaking Spanish openly in the workplace or, you know, a foreign language in the workplace. And by the way, this girl is wearing, this woman is wearing hoops. You know, I needed to see all of that. When as a young woman, I needed to see that. I needed to see that. And, and I never saw that growing up. And so I promised myself when I put that video together that I was going to share those parts of me that, that, that I needed to see as a child. Right. Um, and despite everything that happened, despite how awful it was, um, I, I don't regret it. And I would a thousand percent do it again. I mean, it was trending number four. We started a global conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility on a global scale, trending number. You can't buy that kind of publicity, right? And we did that just by speaking, just by CIA, just letting me tell my my story, right? And I think there's a lot of power in that, you know? I think there's a lot of power in that. Well, I hope that, you know, through that uh, experience that it resonated in a positive way as well, like you just mentioned, um, and that people reached out to you um, on on the flip side saying that this, I saw myself in you or this encouraged me to apply or, or things like that. So I hope that you received messages that resonated with viewers in a, in a positive way. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like if I could, I wish I could print out all of the things like my, my friend, my colleagues, children, young women were calling me on the phone to thank me for that. There were the recruitment center at CIA would send me excerpts of people who said, I only applied because I saw her video. And now I see myself there. There's a woman at my age, Elie and I, who sent me an email and she said, I watch your video every single day before I come into this workplace. Because I need, I need your energy to come into this place. I need that, right? There's a security guard in my office who stopped me and said, hey, was that, was that you in that video? And I said, yeah. And she said, I applied after I saw your video. So, I mean, all of the amazing things that like, could have happened, the, the things that that video was supposed to inspire, right? That happened mm-hmm. too. That happened too. I would encourage you. So I, I, I'm going to encourage you to do this just because this is what I do. Someone told me to do this once is I would print out some of those like you probably can't print them all out because there's probably hundreds but print out 10 that really touch you and put them in a in a journal or something and when times are tough look at those or Mm -hmm. keep them for your sons so they Mm -hmm. can see the positive impact that that did make and I would say do it print print those out (laughs) (laughs) so I'm wondering um you know Looking back, I mean, you're still in you're you're still in the prime time of your life, so right. you still got a lot of a lot of time to go and a lot of cool things to do. But what would you tell your your young self, like your young Stephanie, um, now 
where you are now in, at this point of your life as a mom or as a professional or as a wife, you know, however you want to answer it or all three. Yeah, I, I would tell myself to take it easy, <laughs> <laughs> take it easy, trust the process and just be nice to yourself. Like grant yourself some grace girl, because I was so awful to myself, my pretty much my whole life. I've been really hard on myself, you know, everything that I, if I didn't achieve something, it was, it was my fault. Right. Like, I mean, I was so hard on myself. So I, there's, you know, when I was a prime example, um, and this is, a, I don't even know if I should consider this a regret or not. Right. Um, when I was studying for the bar exam, I, I remember the first day of bar review, right. So it's studying for the bar exam the night before it's December 28th. Um, it's the day after my birthday, I'm pregnant. I found out that my, I was about to walk into bar review and I get a call from my dad that my grandmother had just passed away. Oh my um, goodness. And so I'm like <laughs> knocked up. So I'm already not stable. Right? <laughs> Hormones are going crazy. Right. I'm working full time because this was that boss I had that was just wretched. Right. That, um, you know, I think I, she only approved me to take off three days before to study for the bar exam. So, I mean, I'm working full time in Virginia, hauling ass to Baltimore at night for bar review, pregnant. And then, you know, that was my life, but I did it. Right. I remember. And so I, at that moment, before I walked into bar review, like I I remember going back into my car, sitting in the backseat and I just started bawling, crying. I was like, I mean, I was, I was lost. Like, I didn't know what, what the hell to do. And so in that moment, I, I heard my grandmother's voice, right? (laughs) My grandmother was, um, she was not a nice lady. I'll, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, she didn't, have, she couldn't be right. Like she came to this country to speak a you know, lick of English and she may do. Right. Um, but I heard her in my head, you know, saying, you know, I'm, I'm gone. Like I'm done. You know, like I'm, I didn't come here for you to sit in this backseat and cry. Like I came here for you to go kick ass and take names, get up, go to school. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. what I heard in my head. And so in that moment, I, I did, right? Like, like I said, when I say the, everything that could have gone wrong for bar exam could have, right? I was told that because it was so hard, like I struggled with the LSAT that I wasn't going to do well in law school. And that, you know, also because I struggled on the LSAT, I wasn't likely that I was going to pass the bar exam the first time, right? I remember there was this, I read the statistic that said there was the number of people of color who failed the bar exam the first time around, right? And I remember reading that and I was like, that is not going to be me. Like, I don't care what I have to do. I won't sleep I won't eat, but that's not going to be me. Um, and so that statistic in mind and my grandmother and me saying, I go back and go in, like, I'm, I'm glad that I went back and I took that test because I passed the first time. And that's something that I am very proud of because the world told me I was never good enough to get into law school. I wasn't going to get good grades. I was not going to you know, ever be a lawyer. The world told me those things. And, you know, here I am knocked up, <laughs> daughter of immigrants with a dead grandma working full time, but the awful boss, like, and I made it happen. Right. So I'm really proud of that. But at the same time, it was really hard and it didn't have to be that way. You know, I didn't like, I didn't go to my grandmother's funeral because I was studying for that stupid test. Right. And so I, there's a part of me, like, I don't even know if I should, like I said, I don't even know if I can consider that a regret. Right. Because I'm glad I passed it. I, that is how in my mind, that was the best way to honor her. But I do feel like it would have been okay that I would have given myself the space to say, Stephanie, you can also honor her by taking this test six months later, you Mm -hmm. know, when you're not pregnant and when you're had some time to grieve, you know, so that is what I would tell myself is to, to, you know, to just take it easy and give grant yourself some grace because 
I am so bad at that. I'm so, so bad at that. And, you know, in this job too, like, you know, I, I, I get emotional because I, this is, like I said earlier, this is not something that you just take off when you leave or when you walk in, right? Like there are people who have, you know, wonderful experiences and awful experiences or who, for whatever reason, right? And I, I carry that on my shoulders. Right? I carry that every single day. If someone has, is experiencing any form of, you know, discrimination, if there are women in war zones who are experiencing things, like I, I carry that on my shoulders every single day. Um, and I'm still working on taking it easier, right? So the advice I would give the younger Stephanie <laughs> back then is the same advice I try to give myself and that my staff every single day gives me is that, you know, you're not alone take it easy. You can't carry it all by yourself, but also, you know, this work matters. So I see why you want to carry it all by yourself, but, you know, take it easy, take it easy. Right. And I'm, I'm still struggling with that. I think, I think all women who are striving for some sort of success in, in a professional setting and being a mom or, or not um, struggle with that. So thank you for, thank you for saying that and, and sharing that with us. Um, man, I really don't want this to end, but we, and we have one more question. Um, and I think, you know, it's coming and this is the fun one. Um, yeah. I hope it was fun for you. It was. So <laughs> as you know, we end each episode with the same question and in keeping with the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? I've been thinking about this question for a very, very long time. And I came up with a whole bunch of code names. Um, I asked my husband for what he would say. And he <laughs> said um, his code name for me would be move over because that's <laughs> everything I do is just move over. Um, but in retrospect, thinking about it, the code name I would pick is Mija. Um, Mija uh, is a term of endearment in Spanish, uh-huh. and it translates to my daughter. It's a short version for saying my daughter. Um, my family calls me that. It's you know, it doesn't have to be your parents calling you that. Um, there are a number of officers, Latinas and Latinos at CIA, who um, have used this word with me in a professional setting, and every time they do, I get choked up. Right? It's just, it's just, I'm you know, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, to hear that in the space. Um, and I had the opportunity to meet Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor back in uh, a few years ago. And I, when I met her, I was just completely overwhelmed. Right. I was just like, so, because I'm looking at her and I'm like, you look like my, my mom, right? Like, <laughs> just like, I, and like, you are a Supreme Court justice. You're everything that everybody told me I would never ever be. And here I am attorney working in this space and with you. Right. And she, and I'm talking and I'm just, you know, super emotional. I'm not pregnant this time, but I'm still super emotional. <laughs> and she looks at me and she says, Mija, you got this. Oh, right? I and got the chills. Again, at that moment, I was like, oh my God, she called me Mija. So, you know, I, I would pick that because, you know, it, it speaks to me. Um, it speaks to me. And I think it speaks to a lot of young, young women out there, but young Latinas specifically, um, you know, letting them know that they're worth it. Um, and that they're going to be okay. Uh, I know we've never met in person, but, and I, this might be inappropriate, but I want to give you a big hug. <laughs> That's how I feel about this episode for people can't see us, but we're hugging each other over Zoom. <laughs> um, 
Ah, man, this has been, thank you so much for doing this with us. It has been, thank you for being so candid Mm -hmm. and for being so vulnerable with us. And, you know, I mean, it goes without saying, thank you for your, for your service um, to this country and to all those that serve, because you're, like I said, you have a, you're, you're serving a dual mission. Um, And I know how important it is to those that are in and, and how important you are to look up to. So thank you very much. This has been so great. I don't know if I've laughed this much in the episode. So there's another, <laughs> there's another, uh, you know, th- thing you won in this episode. <laughs> I'm really sorry for the cursing. I've done my best. <laughs> that no, is, that's my, the best part. And anyone who knows me knows that that is, this was me at my absolute best. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Well, thank you again, Stephanie. Uh, We really appreciate you on behalf of the whole entire um, Iron Butterfly team. Thank you. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we would like to thank Katie Naquin Hopkins, Amanda Young, Liz Herndon, and Ruth Zoe for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.